Villas Grace Church, building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know him, to grow in him, to go with him. Well, thank you so much, Steve and Joe. You guys did a great job. That's what I love about this church. We could be missing half our church, the majority of our praise band, and we still put out a quality, quality worship service. So that's awesome. <clears throat> it's good to be up here this morning, even if I'm a little bit under the weather. That's okay. My voice will just go in and out. I'll try to speak loudly. But as we continue our, our series in testing our assurance, it's our series in 1 John. Uh, last week, Pastor Matt did a great job uh, teaching us about testing the spirits. Not everything you hear in a church is going to be of God, and there's an easy way to test that, and it's Jesus-focused, not me-focused. Um, so uh, that was a great job yesterday. Let's, let's start off with a prayer this morning. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this opportunity where we could be here to worship you. Uh, Lord, we just want to pray for all those traveling and uh, again for uh, Oliver and Zara to heal up. And uh, Lord, just thank you for the blessing of another grandchild. Ha I'm, Heather and I are so excited for that. And we're just lifting all this up to you, Lord, and just let everything we say and do, let me teach your truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have this uh, billboard and I think it's Moscow, Idaho. They, uh, a group here, the AmericanHumanist.org, uh, this American, human, American humanist group, a group of atheists, paid money to put up this billboard. It says, millions are good without God. Now, there's a lot of theological issues with this because we know that no one is good. Amen? Amen. But they just want us to know that there's millions of people that do plenty of good things apart from a higher power called God or, or whatever, you want to, uh, whatever we would call him in different religions. In fact, there was a recent study uh, by a professor of the University of Chicago, and he had a group of children of Christians, Muslims, and non-religious children, and he said that his study shows that the non-religious children were actually kinder and nicer and more giving. I'm not quite sure how he carried that out, but uh, that's what he claims. So many people claim that they could live perfectly moral lives apart from this higher power telling them what to do. I guess that's true, wouldn't you? I mean, you can do good things denying that a God exists. But the real questions are this. Why would you? Why would you do good things? Now, one of the things that they're exposing here is that they're telling you that they know they should do good things. My question is, if there is no higher power, why? Why would we do good things? I mean, if you look at Darwinian evolution, it says it's survival of the fittest, not survival of the nicest. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, not, hey, sacrifice and be good and you'll succeed. In fact, if you don't believe in a creator God and you don't believe that he sets the rules of this universe, you have to believe in a universe that happened by chance that says only the toughest survive. Doesn't make much sense to me. 
Also, how is good defined? Who gets to define this act is good, this act is not good? Who gets to define that? What about deception? Would you say that's a morally good thing or a morally bad thing? Deception, what do you think? Bad, right? Deception is something that's bad. What's crazy is that deception is actually an awesome evolutionary advantage. You look at stuff like, if you're a Florida fisherman, you look at stuff like the, the redfish. It's got a little dot on its tail that really resembles its eyeball because it's fooling predators. When a predator comes up to a redfish to hit it, it's like, wait a minute, where's the head? And it confuses it for a moment. Now, I think the Niemeyers had a little friend in their pool that they found this week. Uh, can you tell me what that was, Leighton? They had a little king snake in, in their skimmer of their pool. Now, I'm a, I, I grew up in Florida, so I, can, I wasn't born here, but I consider myself a Florida boy. When I was little, I got to learn all about coral snakes and king snakes. Now, if black borders yellow, he's an okay fellow. But if yellow borders black, watch out, Jack. That's how I learned it. Okay, but that's an evolutionary advantage because this king snake just gets to just go about his business and the birds of prey and everything else that would eat that, they're like, hmm, I don't know if that's a coral snake or a king snake, mostly because they can't remember the rhyme. But they can't remember if it's a coral snake or a king snake, so they leave it alone. The king snake has no venom. So deception, while we label it as something morally bad, Evolution says it's something that helps you succeed. Think about all humans that use deception to get ahead. So this idea of good, and again, they know they should do good. They're saying we should all be good. Millions could be good without God, but we know somehow we should be good. Doesn't make evolutionary sense. So where did it come from? How do we know we should be good? Some say cultures defined it. But why are so many cultures so similar? Cultures that have never interacted with each other. They all have the same grasp and the same idea of these moral good and good and bad. Like we shouldn't steal, we shouldn't lie, we should be honest, we should be giving, we should protect people. I mean, sure, you can be good all the while denying that God exists. Let me ask you a question. Uh, if you ran out of milk today, where would you go get some more milk? Store, right? So where does milk come from? Right. It's funny. If you think of it that way, using their logic, I suppose you could drink milk all the day long while denying that cows or dairy farms exist. Because I don't need to go to a dairy farm. I could just go to the store. It's already prepackaged. It's already uh, ready for use. It's easy and convenient right there. Using that same logic, you don't have to believe in dairy farms in order to drink milk. You could drink it all the day long because it's right there at your store. See, many agree that a universal moral law exists, one that is knowable to even those that don't claim God exists. So if rules exist that are knowable, at all times, like torturing people for fun. It's hard to 
it, it would be hard to find someone that said that that is a good moral attribute. We all know intuitively that that is a wicked, evil thing to do. How do we know that? When someone proclaims, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. If someone butts in front of you in line at the, at the, at the bank, do we still go to the bank? At the store or anywhere else we go, you know, you, someone that you cut in front of, they're going to say, hey, that's not fair. They're pointing to universal laws that they know we all understand. Try stealing from a thief. Someone that makes their living by deceiving others. Try taking something that's theirs. Oh, you're going to hear all about how wrong that is. See, as sinful human beings, we know we will not naturally choose to follow the rules. Amen? We need laws. But what's funny, again, these atheists that, that paid a, probably some good money to post this sign are admitting they know they ought to do good things. They just don't have any idea why. We as Christians, as believers, we know the good moral law, and we know exactly where it comes from. Just as we know we can't get milk without a dairy farm, we cannot get moral laws without a moral law giver. Today we're going to talk about one of the greatest acts of goodness. You know, we've been, we've been spending all this time talking about where goodness comes from. Well, the greatest act of all goodness is love. So this morning, I want to focus on that. That's why our, our, the title of our sermon this morning is The Source of Love. We'll be in 1 John 4, 3, 4 7 through 13. We're going to talk about three aspects of love John describes in our text today. Where love comes from, how love is defined, and why sharing it is the most important. Because just like goodness, love comes from somewhere. Love being the highest form of good could only come from the highest being, which is God. Let's look to our scriptures this morning, starting in verse 7. It will be in 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 13. The verses will be up on the screen. I want to do something. Uh, I want us to count in these seven verses that we're going to go through right now, count how many times you see the word love or a derivative of that word love. Start in verse 7. Beloved, that's one in case you're counting. Let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was man made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So anybody want to take a guess at how many times love was in there? 15. 15. That's right. 
She nailed it. I know it's 15 because I only had to take off one of my shoes to count. <laughs> if we condense all these verses about love, we get this main idea. When we love others as God loves us, we point others to the source of love, which is God himself. When we love others as God loves us, we point others to the source of love, which is God himself. Listen, people, God wanna know, people want to know if God exists, we're the evidence. So let's start with that first thing. Where does love come from? The source. John starts off by saying, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, who does not love does not know God because God is love. He starts out there in verse 7, beloved. He's saying, those that know they are loved by God. Let us love one another. He's saying this defines us as Christians. We love others the way that God loves us. Why? Because he says, for love is from God. God is the highest form of goodness, the highest form of righteousness. Therefore, he is the ultimate source of the highest form of good, which is love. Love is something that is eternal and it transcends cultures and it transcends time. How could love spring up out of such a heartless, cold universe? Again, if you don't believe that a loving God created the universe, you have to believe that something exploded and all this happened by chance. There is no hope. There is no purpose. There is no reason for us to be alive other than the fact that we just happen to exist. When you look at something like love, how in the world can anybody believe it just sprung out of nothing? John goes on to say, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, when we're saved, when you put your, tr your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross and you are saved at that moment, something amazing happens. God promises to give you a new heart. You become spiritually alive and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside us. How could we be the same after something like that? So John's saying whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. When we, when we love lo others like he loves us, we actually give proof that the Holy Spirit dwells inside us. In fact, John goes on to say the other side is that if anyone who does not love does not know God. Seems like he's pointing to something that's a theme here. We know God, we must love others. If we don't love, how can we say we know God? I saw a, a meme on Facebook the other day and it really uh, hit to the heart of this. It says, you can't treat people like garbage and worship God at the same time. As Christians, we sometimes do that, right? I'm guilty of it myself. But what perspective that is that you cannot treat people like garbage and worship God at the same time. 
In fact, if you are a red letter person and you love the words of Jesus written in this, in this Bible, which, by the way, all the words are from Jesus. Jesus says in 13, uh, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, the big little word, if, you love one another. God is the source of love. And I guess you can say he wants us to, well, like spread himself around. When we love others with nothing to gain in return, what we're doing is that we're actually showing one of God's attributes. Brings us to our first point. When we receive the merciful love of God, it should compel us to show his love to others. When we know that we don't deserve God's love and all the things he did so that we could receive God's love, it should compel us to show his love to others as Christians. Not only because he is love, but because he also commands us to love. Amen? So what kind of love is this? What kind of love does God show us? Well, we pick up in verse 9. We're going to see that God's love is unconditional and it's sacrificial. In verse 9 it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Verse 9, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Think about this. God proved his unconditional love by sending his son. Jesus came off the throne, made himself lowly, came in the flesh, so that we might have the chance at eternal life. It's known as the great humiliation of Christ, or as we call it, Christmas. The story of God coming in the flesh. Think about what he gave up in all glory to make himself low, to come just so that we may have the chance at eternal life. Why did he do this? Verse 10 says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God loved us even before we knew him. To me, that is mind-blowing. Even before I cared what God thought, he loved me enough to come to earth. The end of verse 10, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a big theological word that means payment or satisfying the wrath of God. God sent his son to be the legal payment for the sins for all those that put their faith in him. Or what we call Easter. Amen? He came so that we may have the chance at eternal life. And then he died, defeated death, and rose again so that we had a chance to receive eternal life. True love is meeting the needs of others, especially when they can't help themselves. I heard a, a great 
uh, illustration of this. I was uh, at, unfortunately, I was at a memorial service for a young man a few weeks ago, and I really loved how the pastor described this. He knew that he was talking to a, it was, it was held in a park, and he knew he was speaking to a bunch of unbelievers, but he wanted the gospel message to go forward. So he said this, there was once this Indian chief, and he was an awesome Indian chief. His people loved and respected him, and he was a great man, a great warrior, and a man of integrity, and his people adored him. So one day, the Indian chief's sitting with, down with his elders, and they're realizing that they have an issue. Somebody in the tribe is starting to steal. And with this Indian chief, knowing that he cannot let this go unchecked, decrees this law that if anybody is caught stealing, they will be drug out into the middle of the village, they'll be tied to a tree, and they will be beaten with rods almost until death. Because they cannot allow people to steal in their village. Well, a few days later, unfortunately, someone was caught. And as they led this person out to the middle of the square to tie them to the tree, it was the Indian chief's mother. He was devastated. For whatever reason, this woman decided to take something that didn't belong to her. So now the Indian chief is, he's, he's, in, a, he's in a pickle. He could either be devastated and watch his mother be beaten knowing that she's probably not going to survive because she's old and frail. Or he could just let her off the hook and lose the respect of his people and be seen as an unfair, wicked chief. So just as the men were about to do what they were going to do, he says, stop. He takes off of his headdress, he takes off his majestic robe, and he walks down into the square and he wraps his body around his mother. And he says, go ahead. Give me your worst. That brings us to our second point. See, two things were done there, guys. Justice was served, and the chief protected his mother from the wrath she deserved but could not bear. God's love is unconditional, and it's sacrificial. It is defined by the act of dying on the cross for the salvation of all mankind. And although, let me point out, it's for the salvation of all mankind. Not all will receive the free gift. And that's what's really sad. It also reminds us of our main point. When we love others as God loves us, we point others to the source of love, which is God himself. The last section, why is sharing it with others the most important? Picking up in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We do this because no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. When we share this love with others, we give proof that God actually exists in us. 
What's funny is love, if you think about it, it's an unlimited renewable resource. It's something that multiplies, it doesn't divide. It's not like one day we're going to go, oh, I guess we ran out of love. I have no more love to give. I learned this dynamic. Um, one time I was holding my daughter Zoe when she was born. And I was, I don't know, I think I was 13. No. <laughs> I was very young, probably 18 or 19. But I'm, I'm holding this little girl and I'm just amazed because already I love her. And I knew from that moment that I would do anything I possibly could to protect her. And I just loved her with all of my heart. Well, a funny thing happened. Then Heather told me that she was pregnant again a little later on. And I thought about this. This thought popped into my mind. I'm like, how in the world am I ever going to be able to love something as much as I love this other child? I don't even know if that's possible. How can a heart hold that much love? Well, I remember one December morning when Zara was born, immediately holding her, looking down and going, wow, it happened again. I didn't have to try. I didn't have to strive to love this child. I already loved her as much as I loved Zoe. And then grandchildren came. And I'm holding this big, giant, fat baby. Her name was Kennedy. She was born like over 10 pounds, and immediately I'm holding this little girl going, oh my gosh, it happened again. I love her as much as I love my own daughters. And then y'all know how much Gramps loves his William. Then my William John Schifoni, he was born, and again it happened. Then Peyton Lee Taylor was born, and when I finally got to meet her, it happened again. And I'll tell you what, the second I saw this, Oliver Schifoni, it happened again. That little boy, his gramps, loves him. Love is a renewable, inexhaustible resource. God has shared it with us, and he's telling us we need to share it with others. Even more, verse 12, it says, his love is perfected in us. His love becomes complete when we share it with others. God's love is already perfect. Let's not get that twisted. But it is perfected when we share his love with others. We are just the vessel. He is the source. We are never more Christ-like than when we are showing his love to somebody. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. When we show this kind of love to others, we give proof that the Holy Spirit actually dwells inside us. We live in his will and he dwells in us and lives through his Holy Spirit. This is the only way that we can love perfectly because as I established in the beginning, guys, we don't always want to do the right thing, do we? It gives us our third point. Evidence that God exists and dwells inside us is shown when we love others unconditionally and sacrificially. This is the evidence, and one way that we can test our, our assurance of our faith is when we love people unconditionally and sacrificially. It's not a human trait to do that. It's not something that evolution just produced. 
I can kind of understand it, that there's this evolutionary instinct to protect your own children, but what about the stranger that dies for another stranger? It's not a natural thing. We don't love others to gain God's favor. We love because God favors us. As we close, we talked about where love comes from. When we receive the merciful love of God, it should compel us to show his love to others. God commands us to love. He wants to reveal himself through us. Church, are you loving others the way that God loves you? I know I fail a lot at that. How is God's love defined? God's love is, uncon is unconditional and sacrificial. It's defined by the act of dying on the cross for the salvation of all mankind. Loving like God will be costly. It's going to cost you something. Many times we're surprised by that. But think about what God sacrificed for you so that he can pour his love out on you. Why sharing with the, uh, his love with others is the most important. We reveal God to others by loving others the way that God loves us. Evidence that God exists and dwells inside us is shown when we love others unconditionally and sacrificially. I would really like to challenge us today. It's hard because we want to love others only when they love us, right? We want to love people when it's easy. Especially Christians. For some reason, we like to shoot our wounded, don't we? Well, that Christian's not acting the way they should. I don't have to pay attention to them anymore. That Christian's not doing the things I think they should do. I don't have to be friends with them anymore. Especially Christians, we should be the most understanding and the most giving and the most loving towards each other because that is our example. And we're reminded of our main point. When we love others as God loves us, we point others to the source of love, which is God himself. People want to know if God exists. We're exhibit A. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, praise you that you loved us first and willingly died on the cross so that you could be made, so we could be made right and have a relationship with you. Praise you that you not only call us to love others, but you also promise to give us a new heart and a new mind that wants to please you by loving others. Praise you that you call us to be your agents of love and reach out into a sinful world in love so that they may come to know you. If there's someone here, Lord, that does not know your love, I pray this message reaches their heart today. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com, or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.